right, you're listening to episode two of the Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. Uh, this episode features Brittany Spanos from Rolling Stone. And without really trying for it, we had a pretty fun conversation that's mostly about how legacy stars get their music to younger generations. Uh, Brittany makes a lot of really good points. So she has been thinking about this quite a bit. Uh, we start off talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Doors, which was her original idea for a topic. But we really end up spending a lot of time and a bit talking about Madonna and Lady Gaga. So I think this, <laughs> even if you are utterly repulsed by those, uh, those bands, I'm pretty sure you will probably be into the Madonna thoughts. Um, this is a Saturday episode, and while this is going out for free, uh, as uh, the first few are, uh, pretty soon all the Saturday episodes will only be available to Patreon subscribers. So to get all of the episodes and more, you got to sign up on patreon.com slash fluxbog. It is $5 a month. It is not too much for how much you are going to be getting. Uh, so anyway, let's get to the episode now. So, uh, Brittany, why don't you tell me uh, who you are, what you do? Uh, I'm Brittany Spanos. I'm a senior writer at Rolling Stone, and my main coverage area is pop music. So I kind of help run a lot of our pop coverage for the magazine website. But um, I, I tend to cover a, a wide range of, of genres and artists um, for, for both. And how long have you been there? Like maybe four years now, five years? Uh, five and a half years. It's going to be six in January. Yeah, you're a senior. Which is wild. I, I saw that you're a senior writer now. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just moved to senior writer last year, which is really exciting. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just sort of streamlined a lot of what I was already kind of doing, but just kind of gave more focus to the fact that I'm doing a lot more with like curating coverage for our like our pop music coverage um without necessarily having to be an editor which i don't think i would be very good at <laughs> and just for the the for to give the readers context you've done a lot of like pretty big uh cover stories for rolling stone like who, like like which yeah. ones have um my first cover story was cardi b's first cover story for us she's done two and so mine was um end of 2017 right when bodak yellow was blowing up um then Janelle Monet in 2018, Lizzo earlier this year, and Normani earlier this year as well, and most recently the weekend for um, our Grammy. Yeah, special. so these are these are like the big guns. You're hitting the big guns. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but we are going to talk about uh, something totally different from that uh, today. You yeah. have selected the topic of both the Doors and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, the way they can be treated very unfairly by a lot of. Uh, uh, rock fans, I guess is probably the best way to put it. So tell me where you are coming from with these bands, like how you got into them. I, I think I got into them around the same time, actually. Like, I think um, I, I was very much like a, a rock nerd in junior high. Like I was really into, um, you know, I, I just read a lot of like rock memoirs and biographies and, um, obviously it was like getting really into Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone history. And like, I just, I got really like, I, I just listened to a lot of rock music in junior high. Um, it was kind of like post all of my boy bands breaking up. And so this was like my, my outlet after that. Wait, um, so how, wait, I'm curious, like how did you uh, 
what was your initial path into like the memoirs and Rolling Stone? Like what were the first ones? Um, so it's the sort of loose path to it was I kind of got into hard rock when I was in fifth grade, like listening to like a lot of metal. And like, that's when I started to like start to listen to like more grunge and Nirvana. And one of my favorite things to do was kind of like look into like what bands and artists, my favorite artists really loved. And so, um, I, I think I just like, I had like the, with the lights out box set. This is like very, a very detailed memory. I'm sorry. I'm like, with the lights out box set was sort of like a big introduction to that was like the first Nirvana thing I owned. I don't know why my family got that for me, but like, <laughs> was it like a present? Cause like going straight to the box set is like intense. Yeah, it was a present. And so I got really into that and there was like Led Zeppelin covers on there and like a lot of other like covers that they, it was just like a, so many demos. Like it wasn't, you know, it's not, an album. I think my, my family thought it was an album collection for Nirvana and like, it was like a a demos and stuff, which I loved. And so I like got really into, I remember like I read like a lot of Nirvana biography, like, you know, biographies and like special issues that would come out from like, you know, like make like, you know, spin would do like the commemorative stuff and Rolling Stone and like, um, you know, Q and like all of the kind of niche, uh, music magazines that you'd find in record stores and, and Best Buy and Borders and things like that. And so, um, but yeah, I like, I remember like getting really into Led Zeppelin because they had a cover of Heartbreaker on there and I loved Hammer of the Gods. It was like the wildest, I like read that when I was 11. It was like the wildest book I'd ever read. Um, and which I don't recommend reading when you're 11, but like, um, and so, I mean, it's the same thing that got me to watch the Doors movie, which is how I got into the Doors. Like, I just, like, really loved that kind of, like, era. And so I would read a lot of, like, um, I had, like, this, like, book of Rolling Stone interviews and things like that. Like, um, and, like, this, um, I think I still actually have it. This, like, 20 years of alternative music from Spin. Um, yeah, like, I had, like, a lot of stuff like that. Like, I just kind of, like, my mom realized that I really loved all of this music that, she like she was also kind of into but she was you know a mom like she was like not like paying attention or like going to shows when all that was happening and so um yeah like I just kind of started picking up a lot of those kind of like special issues and like biographies and got really into all of that so it was kind of it all just sort of happened at once with wanting to explore more of the artists that I loved um which was like pretty reflective of what I did when I listened to like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys just kind of like there was more information on the music itself and like on like the music that Nirvana loved as opposed to like, you know, the music that NSYNC loved. And so it was just like more readily available, but um, yeah, I think it just kind of was a, a translation of my like obsessive, you know, fangirlness. Um, and that's how it sort of mutated when I was in junior high. So that's how I started to read a lot of the white rock biographies and memoirs and like obviously Anthony Kiedis's scar tissue. So that's all kind of related to chili peppers and the doors. Yeah. So, okay. So you got into the, the mm-hmm. chili peppers and doors around the same time. So like, what, like what was your initial um, impression I, of them? So I don't remember which one I got into first, but I remember I really loved the doors movie. I was obsessed with that movie and it was a movie that my mom had also really loved when, when it came out. So she was really shocked that I like had watched it in secret first off and had gotten it from like blockbuster. And, um, cause it was not a movie she would have let me watch. Um, 
if she had known that I had picked it up. And um, I just like got, re- I just like really lo- like Jim Morrison was just so like eccentric and obviously very troubled. But you know, when you're in junior high, it's kind of like, this is crazy. Like he's such a wild guy. And like, I just, you know, he's so hot. And so I just like really love kind of like the weird, like just like a weird and, um, and I like this, I, I loved like psychedelic rock and I loved kind of like that, I think like druggier music because I was very like Catholic school. And so it just felt like it was just such an, a different world from where I ever saw myself or like, could, you know, considered that I would ever be a part of. So it felt very like easy to, you know, project a lot of like weird fantasy onto that world. And so I loved uh, yeah, I just got really into the doors very easily. I just thought Jim Morrison live videos were amazing to watch and just like so incredible. And, um, you know, when he was real, like when he was coherent, like a really great front man. Um, wait, wait, I have a question uh, about just your image of Jim Morrison. So if you came into it through the movie, like when you think about Jim Morrison, do you, is it kind of like muddled with Val Kilmer? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, Cause I, that definitely, I'm like 90% sure that was the first time I'd ever heard a Doors song was when I had just like watched that movie. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of does get a little muddled, but I definitely got really into the Doors themselves and like, I would listen to the music all the time. My family definitely thought I was like secretly doing a lot of drugs. Cause I would just be like listening to the end on repeat <laughs> like you know like just like in my room with my stereo like you know playing the doors for hours <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I was like no I'm just just chilling just here hanging out <laughs> doing my homework um so yeah so that was definitely that introduction and the chili peppers it was really like I liked them and then stadium arcadium came out when I was in eighth grade and that album I just like was obsessed with still love um and i think it's just like such a a fantastic album and i kind of went from there like i loved anthony keys's memoir i like you know went to go i remember i really wanted to go to Lollapalooza when they performed there for stadium arcadium in like 2007 um but i think the first Lollapalooza i went to was like the year after and i eventually got to see them live um a few years later Yeah, and they're just like such a uh, a tried and true headliner. Like, like it, like they're real. Like I've I've noticed this with like Coachella too, where it's like, oh man, we don't have a big rock headliner. Well, let's call the Peppers. They're 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 good for this. Anthony and Jim Morrison like have the very distinct quality of like very straight camp and like being very theatrical and like kind of like playing with the machismo a lot in it and have this really great way of delivering sometimes not sometimes often insane lyrics with like such sincerity and like such like earnestness and like seriousness to it that I I love that like I love that kind of like commitment to the bit that they have in in all their it's not really a bit it's like very like you know what do you think of them without John Frusciante for both of them when they sing out you know just like absolutely wild strings of words but yeah like I, I, I've always really loved that theatricality.
yeah, like very like teen heartthrob level kind of like rock stars that don't really, you know, very like I can think of like Michael Hutchins and, you know. Well, I mean, I guess they're like the three or four biggest records are all the, Um, uh, they're all the first Shante records. Yeah, there's like a bit of like, you know, he definitely takes it like a step further. And there is that kind of like grotesqueness sometimes and um, in a way that like, I don't think Anthony Kiedis ever. Yeah, like, for, for me, that's the like one to, that's like and that I mean, that's like, that was it like to that extreme. Definitely the first thing I've heard by like them. That, that's because like, that was I was like 11, I think, when that came out. So, you know, I'm coming into that like right around the same age. I probably bought it when I was 12 or 13. And for that reason, a song like Sir Psycho Sexy is like printed on the back of my skull. And like, I, I like, there's lots of songs that I love that I could not tell you all the words to, but I can tell you all the words to Sir Psycho Sexy. <laughs> quality of like very straight camp and like being very theatrical and like kind of like playing with the machismo a lot in it and have this really great way of delivering sometimes uh, not sometimes often insane lyrics with like such sincerity and like such like earnestness and like seriousness to it that I I love that like I love that kind of like commitment to the bit that they have in in all their, it's not really a bit, it's like very like, you know, you can tell it's very like serious for both of them when they sing out, you know, just like absolutely wild strings of words. But yeah, like I, I, I've always really loved that theatricality. Yeah. I think another thing they have in common that's definitely connected to, to the theatricality is that they both eroticize themselves to like a pretty like heavy degree like way i would say like there's only like a few other male rock stars who like sexualize themselves to quite the extent that those two do yeah like very like teen heartthrob level kind of like rock stars that don't really you know very like i can think of like michael hutchins and i would say iggy pop yeah, Iggy Pop. But Iggy Pop, like, uh, like that's more grounded in like this like brutal punk thing. So I think that gives him the pass. Yeah, there's like a bit of like you know he definitely takes it like a step further, and there is that kind of like grotesqueness sometimes, and um, in a way that like I don't think Anthony Kiedis ever like gets like too like takes it like to that yeah. extreme. But he definitely owns a lot of like that like, especially in the '90s, kind of like you know heartthrobness yeah i think but iggy and uh jim morrison are like they're like immediate contemporaries Uh, and it's interesting to see how a lot of people like 
it, you know, it kind of shows a, a certain hypocrisy and like how they venerate uh, Iggy Pop, but will kind of look down on Jim Morrison for doing, I would think, very similar things. And you know, there's a yeah. major difference in the instrumentation, whereas the the Doors is more groovy. They're based around organ, and the Stooges is a super heavy guitar. But they're basically mm-hmm. doing a similar thing. Like, and I think, and they're both like anticipating punk by a good decade. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, also, I don't know, I, I feel like, you know, The Doors, in the ter- in terms of, like, a lot of their singles don't get credit for how incredible they are at pop writing and, like, how, you know, like, Hello, Hello I Love You is one of the greatest pop songs of all time. Like, it's just, like, so incredibly catchy and so delightful and, like, just so, like, you know, fun and, like, sunshiny and everything. Like, I don't think that there's enough credit. Like, I think, like, people kind of get caught up in, like, the very, like, <clears throat> unwieldy, like, you know, 10-minute keyboard solo and, like, the, like, you know, spoken word, like, Oedipus, you know, retelling. But I think, like, when Jim Morrison's writing a pop song, he was writing a pop song. Like, it's, like, incredible. Yeah. Um. Oh, God. The thing with his lyrics, like you'll often see people be like, oh, he's so pretentious. He's so like he's such a bad poet. And it's like, what do you think most rock lyrics are? Because <laughs> it's like, what are you what are you seeing in this that is this so completely different from this wide yeah. range of other rock lyrics, which you know are pretentious, especially when they're pretentious and like they're they'll be in different ways. So like what is is he what is the way he's being pretentious that bothers people? And I've never been able to quite figure that out besides <laughs> i think that people can kind of resent that this kind of like cute jockish guy is doing it as opposed to a more like weird guy yeah he's also like an asshole <laughs> yeah. but, i mean but I think, oh god if, if we're gonna start like being like the like, <laughs> go through the history of music well they're an asshole they're out of the equation. right right like, we, we have a very <laughs> small canon very quickly <laughs> yeah i mean like what's the difference between like you know the doors and Led Zeppelin writing a bunch of songs about the Hobbit. Like, you know, it's not, yeah. it, it's I, mean, I think Led Zeppelin initially <laughs> faced a similar yeah. stigma, but they, I think there's the sheer force of the, that catalog. It overcame it. Like, I mean, I mean, we, I was just looking at the, uh, the Rolling Stone 500, uh, the new one that came out. Uh, and you know, Rolling Stone has, uh, I'm sorry, Led Zeppelin has like six albums in that thing. The Doors got one in, and so did the Chilipers got two. So, I mean, they had a good showing. So this kind of goes a little bit against, you know, what we're saying. But I think both of these bands face a more cultural stigma. Because I think on the critical end, it's not quite as, like, harsh as it maybe was before. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, you know, especially with the Chili Peppers, which I feel like I could speak to a lot more with, like, that cultural stigma. Like, I think, like, I don't know. I feel like the Chili Peppers, like have such a broy following and like appeal to like such like a a certain type of like very hyper masculine like frat boy ish type of person yeah i, th- I think the doors and, is the same yeah. to like a, maybe a slightly different generation if i think back to like being in yeah. high school like every kind of jockish guy i ever knew was like pretty into the doors yeah and i feel like you know by the time that i when I was like getting into them in high school, like it was like, it felt like very much like the other kind of like rock girls who thought Jim Morrison was hot. Like that was like the content. Like, I feel like I was like MySpace era. So it was like a lot of like 
early doors kind of like fan sites I would see and things like that. So yeah, I feel like by, by the time like social media started to kind of revamp it, I mean, I, I don't think they've like gotten full like the Fleetwood Mac and, you know, Rolling Stones and Beatles treatment yet from internet fan culture. But I think there's at least some of that for Jim Morrison that kind of helps like rehabilitate that a little bit, but not entirely. There still is kind of like that like college dorm um, like stoner with like a, you know, tie dye wall art vibe to it. So I have a, uh, man, I don't know if you'll have even have a good answer for this, but you can wildly speculate maybe. So you're just kind of mentioning the thing where, you know, you have like the, the youngest generation of fans who be teens and twenties now. And there really has been this thing where, you know, certain classic rock acts like will just kind of get grandfathered into them as an audience and it can feel sort of arbitrary. So I'm just curious what you think are, what's the recipe for the catching on with that young audience? I think to some extent having like movies helps. I, I think about this a lot and like, I've been trying to think like, I feel like a lot of, I don't think it, this is like the main reason why, but I do think there is a lot of like, a lot of credit due to the younger artists who cite those artists. Um, oh, like Taylor Swift and Terry Styles, especially. Yeah. Like, I think like that I've seen like an uptick in Joni Mitchell fandom on online in like stand culture in a way that I had not seen before Harry and Taylor had started to cite them a little bit more. And I think like the, you know, Fleetwood Mac, there's always been that, that like, love of Stevie obviously and kind of that like you know she's always been such like a mystical figure but I definitely think like her sort of like friendship with Harry kind of like introduced her to a lot of younger people who weren't necessarily like familiar with you know her being connected to landslide necessarily or like her being you know like the Fleetwood Mac sort of mythology there but um yeah I think like you know the Stones and the Beatles it's like very much like pretty boys like you know like they're like their music is constantly around like they're so good at like I mean obviously you know Paul McCartney and Ringo still tour so much and like the Stones still tour so much but their music is just so present in everything like their music is just like in every movie every tv show like it's so hard to avoid them in ways and so yeah I think that licensing is really key. And I think that's part of like, because I mean, I guess the way I've approached this is like, well, why hasn't this happened to like the majority of like the 90s acts? Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons is that cohort like refuses to license their music for the most part. And, you know, one of the few examples that, you know, I think Nirvana would have been carried down no matter what, because they're so canonized and they're so widely beloved. But you know, Nirv- you know, Nirvana stuff is uh, licensed. Like Courtney Love has made that possible. And yeah, I, I think like that—that's one of the biggest roadblocks. Is like if you don't have like an older f- older family who are into I don't know, like the Beastie Boys or uh, REM or U two or like uh, Pearl Jam, like all all those kind of things, which are, which are really really big. But like, it seems like it can be very easy to just not yeah. Uh, run into them. You know, I've, I've always been surprised. I've like, seen a lot of fan sites for are the Smiths. <laughs> like the Smiths have like so many like teens who love them in a way that like makes less and less sense to me as the years go by. 
just because like Morrissey being such a problematic figure um and like also just like I feel like their music is a little bit less licensed lately like I feel like I just like haven't I feel like there was a kind of like a period of time you know late 90s early 2000s where there was like so many movies and tv shows that used Smith songs I'm, I'm surprised that they've been able to hold on to that very like you know continuously young audience that just loves being sad which is you know I love yeah, I love the Smith like Morrissey I think it's easy it's easy to separate him from the Smith's output for at least I think bit. with the Smith's too there's just kind of like it's such ideal teenage music for a particular type of teenager so it just kind of gets handed down in because it's such a functional thing and you know, I don't know, but then again, so is the Smashing Pumpkins, but that hasn't really happened for them. Um, but I, and Billy Corgan, and you know, similarly, like a, a weird figure to deal with. Uh, not quite as bad as Morrissey, uh, but sometimes with the Sniffs, I, because I'm such an R.E.M. fan, I'm always like, oh my God, can't people just tell them that R.E.M.'s there and <laughs> R.E.M. are the, the least problematic boys on earth? Like they never did a thing wrong in yeah. like 20, 30 I feel like years. It could happen. I feel like there's like, a, <laughs> I think we're due for an REM renaissance and like Gen Z canonization very soon. I think it, it just needs one, one TikTok meme. One, everybody hurts TikTok meme yeah. when we're in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they just had that uh, Losing My Religion little special yeah. on Netflix that probably will help a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's also like, I think to some degree, like, it's like who your parents are. And because Gen Z is largely the children Mm -hmm. of Gen X, like, I think that probably will be the in, uh, for a lot of these things. So I, I don't, I think there is kind of a lag too, because like, I think about when I was a teenager and even into a lot of the aughts, like a lot of these bands, like, like Fleetwood Mac was like still considered pretty uncool through that period of time. And that really was this gradual shift. And I think Fleetwood Mac did themselves a lot of favors and Stevie Nicks certainly did, you know, herself a lot of favors. I think Stevie Nicks really points, uh, at least for like a strategy level, like a really good way of just like, no, you have to in some way engage with the younger artists and the younger audience. Yeah. I think like Elton John, we're, you know, I think like that's like someone too, who has been so good at kind of like, consistently uplifting and working with young artists that he's created like a, a constantly evolving young fan base. And even with the the movie from last year, like was that last year, two years ago? Yeah, I think so. Time. I think it was last year. <laughs> it just keeps, keeps going. Yeah. But um, yeah, I can tell you everything that happened in 2020, but before that, everything it's now a blur. Like one big year <laughs> prior to this year. Um, but yeah, like with that movie, and obviously we saw that so much with Queen, like as you mentioned earlier, like there is so much of like, once you kind of create that, like, that piece of culture, like that movie or a book or something that kind of like, is something that people can like easily consume and be exposed to the music. Like that's so helpful. Because yeah, like with Queen, like I saw just like, I remember interviewing Jojo Siwa, and it was like her 16th birthday. And she was just like, I'm obsessed with Queen now. Like, it's all I listened to. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like the movie. <laughs> she saw the movie like 10 times. Yeah, I, I think Madonna's really smart for going this direction. I think, yeah. and, and the ultimate Madonna move of, oh, I'm going to make it myself. Yeah. Like, oh, that's the most perfect Madonna move. <laughs> so so it, it also makes it so like, whether it, succeed, if it succeeds or if it fails, it's still like extremely Madonna. 
So if, if it succeeds, you're like, oh, my God, this brilliant woman who decided to take control of her own narrative, the ultimate Madonna thing. And then if it's just like this hubristic, terrible thing, it's like, oh, that's also, you know, and it's, it's all it's, bad Madonna. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's one of those things, too, where it's like it's an era of her that is so, I mean, like, you know, she has so many great eras, but like the like eighties Madonna in New York, like there's not much that can go wrong there. Right. Like there's it's such like, an amazing and aspirational story. Yeah. Like it's like, it's such like a, it, she's made that movie. <laughs> like she's made desperately seeking season. Like she's made like, you know, like these, like that's, she's done that. Like there are like pieces of culture that kind of are reflective of that very similar sort of rise of like, you know, Midwestern girl goes to New York and like makes it big and or like, you know, also like works her ass off and like writes incredible music on top of that. And so it's like the songs are already there are already like constantly around. And so, yeah, it's and like one of those things parties and boys and it's, it's such yeah, a it's gonna be just like beautiful, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's like, even if it's like the story itself is not effective or the script itself is not effective. Um, I mean, it's also promising that's Diablo Cody too, but like, even if that, if, if there are like things that in the same way with Bohemian Rhapsody, like it just, the music is great. Like it's going to be effective no matter what. And people yeah. are going to love it. And like, it's going to be really cool to see like um, what happens with, I think she's never really given into the nostalgia aspect as much. And oh, so, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's actually a few artists who have refused it quite as much as she has. Yeah. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens after that for her, because I think like, you know, it'll be kind of like a fun balance because you know, she's not going to like stop releasing. She's not going to like suddenly be like, okay, I'm not going to keep reinventing myself, but like to see that in balance with it is going to be really fascinating. Yeah. Oh gosh. I think, uh, where do you think the, the movie would kind of cut off probably like around the time of blonde ambition? Probably. Yeah. I feel like you'd want to have the whole arc of her and Sean Penn. So it would have to go through like the mid to late eighties. And then I feel like that's kind of like the big triumph. And, uh, then, then you're, then you just hand it off to truth or dare. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would probably be like the, cause there's just so much, <laughs> like, it's like one of those things where it's just like, you either like do it, do it all. Or I wonder if she's just going to do like, I don't know, like try to encompass as much of her life as possible. But I yeah. feel like it has to cut, it has to cut off at like blonde ambition. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's like, if you think of a, like a three act structure, that's just like yeah. a, a big happy ending after the breakup. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also yeah. the point where she becomes like, uh, you know, this hugely accepted mainstream figure, you know, yeah. I think through the eighties, like people are put a lot of doubt on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would that would probably be like the best way for them to sort of wrap up the story. Yeah, I hope but it works it's gonna out. Be great. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of those. It's a biopic. Like, it's going to be great no matter. People are going to like eat it up, and it's going to be so good because I feel like there's like so much just because of the way that fandom works right now, and especially pop fandom. Like, Madonna is kind of seen as just like for a lot of pop fans, like they hated her song with Dua Lipa. They think that she's just like, not like if you're not a Madonna Stan and you stand another pop artist, like she is like the enemy for so many of them. Yeah. Um, which is so weird. Cause like, she really should be seen as like the Beatles figure. Like you really would not have most of any of this stuff without her. Like, I, like I really see like, Madonna Madonna and Janet Jackson really are the architects of how we understand pop music now. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things where because she's still like competing against those artists that would not be here without her. Like it's just becomes this kind of like weird fan, like Stan Twitter war. Um, But yeah, like I think it'll be really good for people to kind of see like, this is the same story as like many of your pop artists today. Like everyone here is like here because of Madonna, like all the music exists because of her. Like it's not, you know, doesn't exist in a, in a bubble. It's like really just like a, you know, a history worth, you know, respecting and exploring and wanting to learn about. But yeah, I think that's like, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of the way that people kind of view her. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think also with pop music, there isn't like this uh, this history lesson that you're given over and over again, like there is with rock music, where there is this. Oh, it's anti-history. Yeah, (laughs) it really kind of does need something to be there to be like, well, here's the ground zero of this story. You know, there's you have these zero years in the '70s with disco, but it really becomes this thing in the early '80s, and then you know. It, it beca- I think it was ratified in the nineties and then, you know, th- and then you, once you have like a second generation, it becomes with like Britney Spears, especially, yeah. you know, I think sometimes people just think of Britney Spears as being the zero point. We're like, no, that's not, no, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that pop does kind of need that, uh, you know, kind of popularly understood story. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, pop is so much and top 40 is so anti-history in ways that are always really funny to me because it recycles so much. And so like, but I think to, you know, for on a certain level to make that effective and to make it seem new is to pretend that this is happening for the first time in a lot of ways, even just like the way that we've looked at like a lot of disco revival this year. And like, you know, a lot of the, it's, you know, not necessarily, the same type of disco, but it's still kind of there. It's still kind of like adjacent and still kind of like a, a, a new entity in 2020 in that way. But yeah, pop's relationship with history has always been really fascinating to me just because it's, you know, a very, very tempestuous relationship with it. Do you think there's, you know, some of this is uh, to, you know, I think maybe like people like us are to blame, maybe not us specifically, but like, like music writers, I think have largely avoided, uh, you know, doing this sort of narrative. Um, yes and no. I think there's also just like, again, like this need to re like to repackage and to make things seem new. Like there is this like desire to like, you don't want to kind of seem too referential as a pop artist, because even though all music is referential, you know, everyone comes from somewhere, like a lot of things have been done already. Like, you want to be seen as like a new type of person, like a new type of like, you know, like reinventing the wheel in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, it's kind of a, an industry thing for sure. And kind of this desire to, you know, even like, you know, maybe the most obvious example is Gaga's relationship with Madonna early in her career. Like there was so much that was so like, that was so loud. Um, there was so much of um, the, of her career that was just like very clearly coming from, and coming from being inspired by Madonna, like there's so much uh, there and just her wanting to like separate herself so much from it. And like Ariana Grande and Mariah Carey, like it's like there, you know, you could easily just point out the fact that there is like so much that b- related between the two and so much of Mariah that inspires Ariana. But at the same time, it's like this desire to like completely 
you know, separate yourself from your hero and like make it clear that you are, you exist on your own timeline and that you are the first you to exist. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's just like, I mean, it's, that's kind of, that further complicates that relationship with history. Cause then you suddenly like are creating this like almost few, I mean, I don't, I think, you know, a lot of like Gaga versus Madonna and like Ariana versus Mariah were obviously very, you know, over escalated by fandom as well. But, you know, you kind of like create this rift between the two, between the hero and the, you know, the artist who wouldn't exist without them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Especially as you say before, like they're 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 competitors because Mariah and Madonna have not retired. They still want to have hit songs, mm-hmm. and they're still they're still reinventing their wheel. Like they're still like you know owing so much to their heroes and and you know doing new things. So it's kind of like in order to separate yourself from that, and because they both really don't have a lot of desire to be a nostalgia act, and so many pop artists don't want to be nostalgia acts. Um, and so much of pop is built on having a hit single um, versus like, you know, rock has always been rooted in touring and rooted in, you know, having big shows. And I think a lot of rock artists have found it better to just kind of focus on that aspect of it. Um, it just becomes more complicated to like engage with that history and engage with yeah. what comes after you. I think one of the genius things uh, about what Beyonce has done in the past like six or seven years is like by repositioning herself as an album artist, she doesn't mm-hmm. really have to compete on that level. She doesn't need to have hits. She will have hits, yeah, you know, but it's not like the thing she does now. Mm-hmm. And I think Madonna and Mariah didn't really do that kind of pivot. I think that's maybe slightly unfair to Madonna because I think Madonna has been an album artist for a long time, but I think like she didn't position it quite the same way or as effectively as Beyonce did. And Beyonce like took a lot of things about her fandom, uh, and kind of amplified it by like buying into it. Like, but like I am now a deity. Well, I think like (laughs) Madonna went from being you know, an incredible album artist for, you know, the entirety of her career to wanting to be competitively a singles artist. Like, I think like that was the next great barrier that needs to be broken is like existing in the same plane as the pop artists of the last decade who have been majority singles artists. Um, And I think like that sort of reinvention was very crucial to her, like working with, you know, Nicki Minaj and like working with, you know, MIA and like every kind of like, you know, I can't even, you know, Diplo and like every, every other sort of artist who has really done well in the singles market and on streaming in that capacity. Um, I think that there's more of that desire there for her. And even though she can still like very easily just like sell out stadiums whenever she wanted to and not even have like an album attached to it.
Yeah, I think like, I mean, not to always bring it back to Taylor and everything I talk about, but I think that's why I was so fascinated by folklore this year because Taylor was definitely getting into a cycle of like needing to do a big reinvention with every pop album. And I think it's, it was really shocking to see her kind of like pull back from that and like realize that it was not as effective to like do this kind of like, like, okay, like I'm doing like my New York pop album and now I'm doing like my like dark pop album and now I'm doing my like really bright, like rainbowy pop album. And now, like for her to like pull back and be like, okay, like I'm just going to make like a singer songwriter album. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's almost like the, the, I think the thing I like so much about folklore is it's kind of like, it's like core essential Taylor Swift values, but also like she's a bit older. So that factors into it as well. Yeah. So it, yeah, if it, anything that you've ever liked about her is on that record, right. even if it's not like the, like I, I knew you were trouble kind of songs. Mm-hmm. It's like, but the core of her is there and it's like at the front rather than maybe dialed back or over, uh, you know, or kind of like uh, buried under some layers of synthesizers, things like that. Yeah. Like, I, I think like, that's like the thing with Gaga too, is like Chromatica is such a great album and I think she led with the music first versus the aesthetic, which I think kind of like, you know, really fucked her over with Joanne, where it's kind of like she led with an aesthetic and then a lot of the music kind of got lost in that. But I think that, you know, I think a lot of those artists who have been so reliant on like the Madonna model and like on the kind of like idea of reinvention and thinking of that as the only way of doing pop music have sort of now been like, okay, like I need to backtrack and like, figure out what the actual music is. I think there is, you know, there is a hunger for, for album artists and there is sort of a, you know, I think more of a demand for it than people realized five years ago that people still want albums. They still want like, you know, they don't want to listen to like 17 unwieldy songs that don't make sense together. Um, You know, I think like a lot of those artists are kind of like have reshifted to the fact that they, in the same way as Madonna, like came from like a songwriting background and like have, you know, this like inherent skill to write amazing lyrics and amazing melodies and making sure that that is at the forefront of what they're doing. Yeah. I also just think you can't really beat the album just as a a way of presenting a body of work. Right. Like it's like such an effective way. Like if you're going to reinvent yourself, like that needs to be the bulk of that. Like it needs to be the, the thing leading the reinvention is that if you have this like, you know, album that is kind of a whole world in itself. Um, And again, like Chromatica versus Joanne or even Art Pop, like our albums that just kind of like were a little bit more chaotic in how they approached it and led by the idea of like needing to do like a big makeover and big image makeover with, you know, a few great songs on each of them, but kind of all over the place. But with Chromatica, like it's like such a, a wonderful body of work that created a whole world for Gaga to kind of exist in and, you know, make something that is kind of like a, a brand new version of her. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's core values Gaga, but also kind of a new thing. And also like a, a pretty good pivot from the movie mm-hmm. uh, and the sound she had there. Like one of the ways I've always thought of Gaga is that she kind of is like, like the high concept of her is like, if, Madonna and Axl Rose were the same person. (laughs) She's kind of like all the maximalist, like late 80s, very early 90s stuff, like all together at once. Yeah. And I mean, certainly like the music of her early childhood. um, 
Yeah. And, and it's like peak MTV. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the when MTV is like such a cultural force that like nothing could almost exist without it. Yeah. So we have gone on this like enormous pop tangent, uh, and that's I think that was inevitable given our mutual interests. But let's let's kind of get the circle back to the Chili Peppers and the Doors. So, um, what do you think could change for those bands in terms of the way people perceive them? Because I think I think to a certain extent, like a lot of the old biases against those bands, especially the Doors. I think there's a a lot of hand me down stuff with the Doors, where people just kind of, well, you know, they heard someone they respect say this thing about the Doors, and they just kind of, you know, say it too. Uh, but I think those kind of things like slowly die out. Yeah, I think with the Doors, you know it does feel like they've kind of disappeared from culture overall. And I don't think like anyone younger than me kind of like would know who they are or be familiar with them. Um, Like to a certain degree, like again, like that kind of like fan culture kind of existed more so when I was online and like, you know, but yeah, like I I've been curious about what, because again, like Jim Morrison's so pretty, so easy to become like another kind of, like if I saw a Jim Morrison fan cam later today, I'd be like, this is exactly where he was meant to end up is like becoming a fan. Release cam. the footage. That's, that's, so that's uh, part one, release more doors footage. <laughs> release more doors footage. But yeah, I think it's, you know, they've already done the biopic. They've already kind of like, well, the biopics from like 91 or something or 90. So it's, it's, it's pretty far on the river mirror. So it's almost like remake the biopic. Yeah. Yeah. Remake, make a new one um you know license more of the songs there was kind of you know they did they did have a a couple of songs on glee actually um and the first couple of seasons i remember they did hello i love you on glee once but yeah i'm I'm curious like it's like one of those things where the music it is pretty dated to a point like you know it's like it very much sounds like it's from the 60s like (laughs) you know like whereas like fleetwood mac and you know some stones and Beatles songs like feel kind of like can always sound pretty fresh right now like that keyboard is so distinctly 60s psychedelic rock like you know it's I'm curious about like how it would translate to now and like I think what's gonna the inevitability is like that Jim Morrison becomes a a cult figure 
in that capacity again. Because there is so much influence on, like, you know, Lana Del Rey. You can easily, that line is, like, so short. <laughs> it's from from Jim to Lana. Like, there's there's no other stops on that way. And so that's kind of, like, that's a good entryway. Um, but, yeah, like, if, if Lana Del Rey just starts talking about Jim Morrison a little bit more, we got it. Like, it's in. It's, the fans will be there. Um, but, yeah. And the Chili Peppers, I, you know, I was shocked when it was announced that John Frusciante was coming back at how many people I know who also really love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like I did not realize how impactful the band and especially Stadium Arcadium was. Like I knew I loved it, but I didn't realize how many people I knew also loved it. And I had a- so I don't really know that one very well. That one has a uh, snow hail, right? Yes. And Danny California Okay. Like I don't think I know any, cause, but that's a double album. There's a lot of songs. There's on a it. lot of songs that, and I did not realize that people were, you know, especially people like who also heard the album in junior high and high school, like how impactful it was on them. Because I knew I loved it. Like I was like already kind of a Chili Peppers fan, but like, you know, I, I was shocked at how many people. Like I like I think I like posted on my Instagram story like the note that they had made, like where they're like, you know, John is coming back. And, like, so many of my friends replied to me. One of my friends was telling me that, like, you know, she used to listen to that album on repeat as, like, comfort after a family member died. Like, it was just, like, something that, like, really got her through. And, like, all these, like, really, like, intense stories about (laughs) the Chili Peppers. And I was like, I didn't realize that people cared about them as much as I did. (laughs) I mean, mean, they are, like, one of the biggest rock bands of the past, like, 30 years. So, you know, there is a certain thing. Okay, yeah, they're they're, they're very popular. But I think it's like, yeah, like what they are to people and like what their place in culture is can be more vague. Um, I, it's, it's, it's similar to like Green Day, where Green Day is a real perennial, like, like I think there's something about Green Day, there's something about Chili Peppers, and um, I think there's certainly other bands where it's like, there's just something about this that's always going to be exciting to teenagers. It's always going to Nirvana for sure. Like it's always going to speak to them. And as long as it's kind of like, you know, on the shelf for them to pull off, you know? Yeah. And I I think, I mean, especially for green day and the chili peppers, they kind of released two really great albums around the same time. Like, you know, American idiot was my introduction to green day. Like I was a huge, like, you know, I'm still a huge green day fan, obviously, but like when I, when that album came out, that was like, that was it for me. That was like my entire life. Like I have like Billy Joe Armstrong pictures all over my room. Like I wore green, like the heart grenade hoodie everywhere. Like that was like everything to me. And that's like, you know, that releasing two out, like, you know, respectively an album for each of them that was like so excellent and so like radio friendly. And so like all over kind of the last the last messages of like mtv culture with videos on on tv constantly or like you know the vh1 top 20 countdown and like things like that that just were kind of keeping them really more relevant than ever and bringing sort of like this like comeback for a generation that didn't that was like born as they started to become really big and started to make those initial hits. But those albums are, are really crucial to them kind of reinventing that legacy. Now I'm curious if that's going to translate over. Like, I think, you know, Green Day, the last, the last albums haven't been as great. And also Green Day is kind of veered into like being very like rockist um, in a way that is really alarming. 
yeah, it's just really bad. Um, and so I'm curious about, I feel like they've got, they've gotten like old man yells at cloud in a way that they were certainly not when American idiot came out. American idiot was so fantastic and so impactful because it was like the big protest album, like the album that was kind of like about teenage disenfranchisement that like was coming from, you know, guys who were as old as my parents. Like, you know, like it's just like they made it so good and so fresh and so new and so like interesting. Um, and like the Red Chili Peppers are just always fun. And so like Stadium Arcadium is just a fun album. And also like with a lot, there's a lot of ballads on that album too. Like a lot of my favorite song on there is Wet Sand. Like there's like a lot of really beautiful ballads, but like um, a lo- there's also like a lot of like fun, catchy radio rock singles. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about like if that's, I don't know if the nostalgia will be there just yet. Like more particularly for Gen Z. Is that the last one they did with Freshiante? Yes. Okay, so it's like they basically have like two or three records of Frusciante. Then there's Dave Navarro for one record, mm-hmm. and then he's uh, Frusciante back for three albums: Californication, yeah. by the way, and Stadium Arcadia. Yeah. And those, so and the Frusciante ones are all the big ones on, on either side. Those, so they have like five yeah. major albums. Mm-hmm. God, that is incredible to like having even just one big record is kind of a miracle. So yeah. to have five gigantic records is crazy. Yeah. I'm curious about like what, what happens next for them. But like, I, I wonder if that will, you know, I feel like in, like, I feel like at any moment, any, any like Anthony Kiedis, like scat will become TikTok viral. But like <laughs> we're we're due for that any moment. I think, you know, to a a big degree, a lot of American idiot I mean, Wake Me Up When September Ends will always be zeitgeisty at least Damn. once a year. And that's like a good that, and that that and it's gonna be May. Yeah. Yeah. We we need to have one for every month. Yeah. And so we got two down. So we just have to somebody has to do like a really perfect like August song. Yeah. Well maybe Taylor. Yeah. Maybe Taylor did August already. Will be that. Um yeah. But yeah I, I, mean, I guess we can go back. Maybe it's time for people to like embrace uh the Counting Crows song along December. Yeah, that's a great song. That feels right for this year. That, I think it this might be the year to make that a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well let's let's tell people <laughs> on TikTok. Just get the memo out where it's like <laughs> Counting Crows, let's do this. <laughs> It's like they have like their first two of the records are great and the guy has crazy hair and you know just do it yeah, just do it it's great for a meme and the, you know this could be their their smash mouth all-star moment like we just like need some like some good meme oh they would be mortified by it though because they're so serious yeah but you know ugh, feels inevitable yeah <laughs> it's their time well yeah well I, I think we've completed an arc here yeah so we made it I we think made we can it wrap this up <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you want to plug some stuff. I think you have a new uh, podcast coming up. Yeah, I have a a podcast that I can't talk about too in depth yet, but it is related to the 500 Greatest Albums. And it will be coming out, I believe, at the end of October. Um, But there should be more information coming very, very soon. But we are we are in the thick of putting it together right now. You can find the podcast Britney's working on on Amazon. It is an Amazon exclusive, uh, Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums. Uh, it's out now as we speak. 
we'll be here again on Wednesday. This coming Wednesday will be an episode featuring Ryan Brodrick, and we'll be talking about 100 Gecks and uh, their internet music contacts, all the subcultures that put them together. So we're going out on Activity, a song by Activity called Nude Prince. Picture the prince.